And tonight, we're discussing two documentaries, VHS Massacre and VHS Massacre 2. And I'm pleased to be joined by the director of both, Thomas Edward Seymour. I met Tom when I was a reporter for the Connecticut Alt-Weekly, The Hartford Advocate, and I was covering his uh, independent film projects uh, in central Connecticut at the time. And uh, we've stayed in touch intermittently uh, since then, you know, social media and whatnot. And I was really happy to uh, reconnect with him. And uh, I think it's a really great interview. I think it's really fun and informative. And I think you're going to love it. And without further ado, here's Tom. All right, great. So uh, today, uh, my guest, I'm really excited to welcome my guest, Thomas Edward Seymour. He is uh, an independent filmmaker. And um, I believe you're a, a professor of film in the CUNY system. Yeah, yeah, I teach video production at, yeah, CUNY, uh, and it's at LaGuardia College, yeah. Oh, that's great. Okay, terrific. And uh, he's made a number of feature films. He's an itinerant podcaster. I don't know if he's still a podcaster at the moment. <laughs> it's sporadic, yeah. <laughs> sporadic, yeah. And he's definitely an expert on all things uh, independent film and exploitation film um, and film production, and he made two documentaries, which is what most of our conversation is going to be about. Uh, the 2016 documentary, uh, VHS Massacre, and 2019? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, it's... 20, it... Yeah, the, 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 the sequel, VHS Massacre 2, that's T-O-O, because yeah. uh, he's a clever guy. Uh, that, uh, that came out in 2019. And, yeah, it, it hit festivals in 2019. It's on Blu-ray now, but not yet streaming. So no streaming yet, just Blu-ray right now. Right. What's well, appropriate because it's a celebration of physical media, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So tell me, um, so let's just start like with the real broad strokes. Like tell me about uh VHS Massacre. Like what 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 is it and what why did you undertake making this documentary? Um, you know, it, it, it started off, we actually started off not really knowing exactly what it was going to be. Um, yeah. uh, my friend Ken Paul and I started going on these VHS like hunts and we'd yeah. walk around to New York, um, various goodwills and whatnot. And we would go and we would find really weird VHS. And, and actually we didn't know exactly what purpose we were going to use those for, except we did videotape everything. Yeah. And, um, but then a bunch of things happened when we started doing that, like Kim's video in New York uh, was going out of business and, um, you know, the, the blockbusters, uh, there was still some remaining blockbusters. But while we were shooting that doc, uh, the last New York blockbuster uh, closed up shop and there was a few things that happened that sort of focused us in a specific way to examine mm -hmm. not only um the death of the mom and pop video stores in Blockbuster, but also um, the the effect that that would have on independent filmmakers in their uh, effort to try to recover their money and things like that. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, in in you talk, talk tell me about the connection between independent filmmakers and those independent video stores. What were their relationships like? Oh, yeah, it was a unique situation. I mean, obviously, in, in the United States, the video store was the first time that the sort of average person had a, a more permanent access to some of these titles. Yeah. Unless you were a rich, eccentric person who had maybe a 16 millimeter projector and a bunch of films, you know, home video was the first time where uh, you can see that movie that you saw in the grindhouse. You could yeah. you know, see that martial arts film that was in the theater and then rotated out. So, um, and what that provided for is the mom and pop videos in particular, um, all had unique, uh, uh, tastes, uh, you know, yeah. they private owners. So, um, and often in the mom and pops, they would, in order to fill out their video store, they would approach independent, uh, distributors who had, uh, uh, you know, deep catalogs, um, trauma. I like, for instance, but also companies like full moon 
And what they could do is make a deal where, um, you know, if a copy at the time, if a copy of something like a Clerks or Pulp Fiction um, were, was like $80 yeah. uh, to get from uh, Miramax or something, you could go in and maybe Trauma would give you like 10 movies for 80 bucks or, you know, whatever deal what they were working, depending on, you know, what year that was. But um, yeah, so they really were like the lifeblood, at least of the direct-to-video director, which I suppose that's why I am as the yeah. direct-to-video guy. <laughs> um, so, but, when, uh, yeah, I'll go on. Oh, oh, so when those when those started to going going away, um, then you had just the you know the blockbuster videos and the Hollywood videos and the movie galleries. Those would carry less unrated, especially blockbuster. Although yeah. obviously there were much like people own Dunkin' Donuts franchises. There were people who owned individual blockbuster franchises. Yeah. In those cases, sometimes you'd see some cool varieties, but the corporate blockbuster, um, which I believe started acquiring Beck franchise at a certain point, yeah. um, would, were started to get a little uh, puritanical about, what titles they would carry, you know? So yeah. that's kind of some of the, some of the stuff it talks about. Yeah. 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 So just, um, I kind of leapfrog a little bit, I think to just to get back, back up a couple of steps, but so VHS massacre, it, it's about sort of the death of, uh, I mean, I don't want to be too negative about it, but it's sort of about you're documenting the, uh, the state of video rental you're documenting the state of um, making independent films and like kind of, you mentioned grindhouse films and like exploitation films. And uh, so you're kind of making, you're, you're following that trajectory. Uh, and then you, you followed it up again in, in VHS Massacre 2. Is that a fair kind of description? Yeah, I think so. Two, yeah, two builds on it. Two is... You know, the end of the first one, there was sort of hope that streaming could save us. And two is sort of the realization that it's uh, media is consolidated in such an intense way that it yeah. really does push out um, the profitability. And uh, we're in a game that isn't really allowing much for the counterculture to, uh, to uh, make a living at, I guess, is what some of the concepts are. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was very, one, one of the things when I was watching VHS Massacre 2 recently that struck me was the thing that you just described was uh, like independent of, you know, filmmakers, they could kind of get their movies out. Like the, the economics worked for them for a while. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, they like, so, you know, the video stores wanted to have full shelves. They wanted to have full shel shelves full of product. And, you know, you, like you said, you can buy like one copy of Pulp Fiction for $80 or you can buy, you know, uh, what was it? Kabuki and NYPD Kabuki. <laughs> right. buy, yeah. uh, 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 Toxic Avenger. Surf, Toxic Avenger, yeah. Surf Nazis Must Die. Right. Any, yeah. You know, any any number of Lloyd Kaufman movies, you know, and and you can have them up there. And that, that I think that's that's part of what the nostalgia, I think, for the video store era is is that there was that variety yeah, yeah and 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 people specifically the genre and exploitation is people would still rent that 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 was the yeah. kind of amazing thing is people people would rent toxic avenger you know probably yeah. just as much as the hollywood releases you know yeah oh for sure i remember as a kid and i'm showing my age but you go into you know, you'd see like shelves of vhs tapes and you'd be like and it's just some Sometimes the covers would be so intriguing. Like you'd rather watch, you know, uh, I don't know. What's a good example? Any any exploitation film over like Forrest Gump or something? Oh yeah, yeah. I I think of um though I don't know if you remember the Death Stalker movies, but the covers were just so. I mean, they look like you know like forty million dollar Conan the Barbarian movies. Yeah. Beautiful covers, and then you get you get it home and yeah, it's not it's not great, but you're okay yeah. with it. back then you you committed and you're usually okay with what you rented you know yeah so there's a certain kind of um 
hucksterism almost. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah. But, you know, I would I would argue that, uh, you know, the studio system constantly uh, says things that are less than true about their new releases, you know. So, oh, yeah. You know, it's a sort of I think exploitation is is sort of the carnival mirror of the, the studio system, you know. OK, um, they do oh. a lot of the same thing. That's interesting. So how would you define exploitation films? Um, I think, you know, uh, Joe Bob Briggs talks, Joe Bob Briggs talks about it. Um, exploitation really is about the marketing. Okay. And um, it's sort of, it's more of an advertising term, but it doesn't mean that the films aren't very specific genre films, but you're usually latching onto a specific thing to take a pretty hard line to market. Right. So yeah. It could be uh, violence or gore. It could be nudity. It could yeah. be um, it could be race. Uh, you think of martial arts movies or uh, black exploitation. It could be um, you know guns, monster movies. Yeah. So, but typically those are varied. Yeah, it, it's it's partially making something that you could you could ride pretty hard on that one uh, uh, you know uh, genre. Trump yeah. or whatever so yeah, yeah i mean i think people think it is a bad word but it's not in it's not really about the the content per se it's not about exploiting people it's literally right. just how you're going to market it you know yeah yeah because i think of it as uh i think there's definitely negative connotations to it but if you think your way through it if you really interrogate what it is it it the negativity kind of drops away i think yeah, it's really the it's really the word. If you just wanted to call it, um, you know, micro budget genre films, or right, you know, you know, you could you could slice it in different ways to make it sound better. But I'm I I used to shy away from that term for years and years, and I'm like, I'm just going to use it now <laughs> if people know what it is. Because yeah. part of the thing too is when you the Lloyd talks about Lloyd Kaufman from Trauma talks about this a lot when you when you talk about the word independent it's kind of lost its meaning because you know the 90s and 2000s all the studio stuff they just made you know uh many major studios and marketed as independent none of that stuff was independent and none of that stuff is now like a24 none of that stuff is independent and i was gonna say a24 because then you have like they're basically hollywood like it, an independent film, like you watch an A24 as an independent film, it's just like a better movie. That's what it seems to be. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it's uh, their, you know, billion dollar company that put out more films than Disney. So I don't. So basically, you know, when you look at the definition of exploitation, uh, low budget is baked into it. So if you yeah. look at like a, you know, Webster Dictionary of Exploitation, it, it's like associated with low production values or something. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. that's what I'm talking about. You know, lo, it's low budget genre, you know, so right. I think it was, you know, I'm like, that's what the word is. So that's what I'm going to use. You know? Right. And it's good. And you, the, the, what the inference I'm making is that it's good to use that term rather than an independent film because independent film is kind of too broad now, too broad. Yeah. It doesn't, doesn't mean what it used to mean. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, because um, it used to be like I spit on your grave or uh, what else, you know. Yeah, uh, a cannibal holocaust or something. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. But now yeah. it's, you know, now it's like a, a Wes Anderson movie, I guess, would kind of. Yeah, that's what, like, a, like a $50 million Wes Anderson movie. It, it yeah. doesn't make any sense. You know, so. Right, right. Or even um, it's like the movies that the guys from the Marvel movies do when they're not in Marvel movies. When they, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. That spinoff, or, or, or I'm sorry, yeah, the smaller art project. I mean, even th- this is the weird thing. If you really think about like '90s independent films, because you know that was growing up, and or I was sort of part of the tail end of that, at least. That yeah. was so you had these sort of poster boys or poster people for independent film. And you think of people like um, you know Tarantino. Yeah. I mean, really, really only his first film was independent. And even that had a lot yeah. of backing. But by the time you get to Pulp Fiction, that's Miramax and Bruce Willis right. is in it. So, yeah. yeah. They have like Tarantino, Paul Thomas Anderson, that yeah. kind of, those. And I, I guess like Hard Eight was kind of independent, but. Yeah. Um, I mean, 
Not really. I, I mean, I'd have to look at it, but if it was backed by Miramax, that doesn't make any sense, you know, yeah. or, or, or whoever put it out might've been some other studio. Lionsgate yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you know, somewhat pre-famed uh, John C. Riley. Uh, I, I forget the older actor's name, but he was, you can tell. The Sydney. The, yeah. 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 You, you can tell just by the production value of it, that it had to have something right yeah definitely i mean there's a few exceptions like you know um people always mention like um el mariachi and and clerk i mean clerks although they did sp i think they spent like a quarter million dollars cleaning that thing up like fixing the audio <laughs> and you know um all the stuff so um but and changing you know, the ending yeah yeah oh that's right yeah someone dies in the original ending yeah I, yeah, it's stupid. It you know it, it's <laughs> it's the great. I like Clerks a lot, and I'm, it. I think Clerks uh, just as an aside, Clerks is a really good movie and it holds up, but it just fooled people into into liking Kevin Smith for like thirty years. You yeah, know? it really did, and yeah. it it is funny. I was talking about this with uh, one of my friends, and like, so the thing about Kevin Smith is actually the the endearing part of him was that his total lack of confidence in all areas. Yeah. And when Clerks came out, it was like everyone had a feeling like, oh, I can do this. So I yeah. kind of like it. And he just kind of rode that out <laughs> for 30 years. Yeah, forever. You know? For yeah. diminished 30 years of diminishing returns. Diminishing returns and then kind of yeah. realizing he wasn't wasn't the every man everyone thought he was. Yeah, yeah, but so, uh, but yeah, so the and those two things are pretty. the The video stores of the times that was also during the video store boom, the '90s, and then that was like the independent film boom. And you know, there's sort of like there's a lot of like whenever people wrote about Quentin Tarantino for a long time, they mentioned that he worked at a video store. Yeah, and so there's always this connection there, but. Uh, and so, the, but then it like they became more corporatized. The filmmaker, those filmmakers, those the big mm -hmm. ones, and the video Absolutely. stores became more corporatized, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Now tell me about just that history and that process of how um, how the vi video stores went more corporate. Uh, well, I mean, it was just a matter of um, blockbuster. Blockbuster actually started out as um, an independent video store, but yeah, just eventually became so dominant that it, it sort of gobbled up a lot of the independence and, and there was a lot of predatory practices they would they would go into a town and open up a huge store and starve out some of the independent um you know uh mom and pops and um they had they had special deals with the studio system where they would do revenue share Okay. So it's like we were talking about if you wanted that $80 Miramax copy of Pulp Fiction, yeah. Um, Blockbuster would um was literally just doing revenue splits. Right. So they would just get 10, 20 copies of or whatever, 20 copies of Armageddon by Michael Bay, right? Yeah. And and uh they pay nothing. <laughs> Masterpiece. <laughs> they pay nothing. Yeah. And um and they would just do revenue split. And then, yeah. you know, mom and pop, it, it just becomes totally impossible to compete. Right. There was the this economics thing. doesn't work for, for independent filmmakers anymore, right? No, no. And they, what happened was there was this company called Rent Track. Rent Track tried to come in and be that broker that could work a deal with the mom and pops. So the mom and pop could do revenue share with Rent Track. Yeah. But then they're buying from the studio. So what you did is put a huge middle person in the in the way, yeah. And then there's no uh, meat on the bone, yeah. So it basically just that combination, you know. Yeah. So in Blockbuster, kind of, they be they just consumed the whole like DVD rental industry. Like they're the only game in town for years and years, right? Yeah. Yeah. For a while, I mean, you did see there were there were. You know, I mean, to this day, there's some, there's, there's some oh, video yeah. stores, um, but it's pretty rare and um, they're not necessarily thriving, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah, like the, is Scarecrow, are they still around? Maybe. Yeah. Scarecrow. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, and then like, I think it's like Seattle and uh, maybe LA, I think. Yeah. And then um, there's a few. I think a lot of them are gone though. Rasputin's mm-hmm. used to be a big one. And then down in, um, down in Tampa, I think there's like a, a one that just does exploitation and horror. Okay. Um, so, you know, there's, there's like not like New York, greatest city in the world, you know, what, you know, uh, a film kind of center, you know, you have all yeah. these movie theaters, uh, what's the, is there a rental is there a single rental video rental store in new york left oh i think there was like one or two in brooklyn and i think Fil- film noir cinema in brooklyn they're kind of yeah. slick because they actually have a theater okay it's like a nice 50 seater theater and then you could rent from the video store part up front yeah um yeah and there was a there's a, a couple places in brooklyn um but i'm sure they're sort of uh mixed bags right like i'm yeah, sure yeah. you could get get beer and pizza there as well so you know yeah. like um but um it's very rare i mean kim's video was kind of the the last great independent video store in in manhattan and that one under yeah. i guess maybe god seven years ago or something like that so yeah and i from from what i understand the sort of uh, the the driving force be, behind that the obsolescence of the video store is the rise of streaming, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Is that, is that yeah. correct? Yeah. yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's just the ease of streaming for sure. Yeah, yeah like why you know? I remember when Netflix first started having a streaming site. It was very it was weird because like the the content that was on there was very hit or miss. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They like would. Was... I had some of my films on there. Yeah. Like. Is that true? They, yeah. Yeah. One uh, land of college profits was on there. Like it was a really weird, like low rent backyard superhero thing. Yeah. Not not particularly good, but it was it was on there. But yeah, they they uh, Netflix in the beginning. Um, yeah. No one. No, none of the studios really wanted to deal with deal with them. So yeah. They they kind of took what they could get, you know? Right. And and so, that, that was that good for independent filmmakers at first? It, for like a couple of years. Yeah. Um, yeah. J.R. Bookwalter, who uh, I interviewed him in VHS too. He was a full moon guy who did a little spinoff company called Tempe. Yeah. And for a couple of years, Netflix would, would pay him. He said the deal was like, it was something like 25 cents a play which yeah. at the time was like good, really good. I mean, if yeah. you imagine if you've got 25 cents of play for anything now, it would be extraordinary, you know? Yeah. Um, but uh, he, the big, JR basically said what happened was they were spending a lot of money paying for some of these uh, streaming residuals and Showtime cable had a deal for streaming and was able to like whatever sub license their catalog. Yeah. And that was kind of the rise of Netflix. They then they started having premium product. Yeah. And 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 then they became the monster that they became, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it was interesting that cuz it was sort of like night and day. Like it went from like these bizarre a lot of things you really wouldn't want to watch. I remember like going onto Netflix. The first time I saw it I had a very tech savvy friend who also had like um, a lot of file sharing stuff going on. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So he had like Torrenting. a big hard drive. Yeah. He had a big hard drive full of like, you know, whatever current releases and stuff. But do you want to watch The Hangover or do you want to watch this like 70s Italian yeah, uh, yeah. dubbed over uh, gangster movie or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it's like The Hangover is going to win if you're in, you know, if you've got in a room with somebody besides me, I guess. Yeah. Even yeah. though I do like The Hangover for the record, but it's story, like the whatever's the, <laughs> the big the bigger hollywood movie yeah for sure yeah and that was kind of, and that seemed like the death knell for video stores like why would you go out to rent to blockbuster to rent the hangover when you can you know um, unless you're like some kind of freak who is going to want to watch the, the the commentary or something you know the special features which i you know which that was i think that was actually a very funny thing about streaming was like 
all the buildup of special features that were on DVDs and Blu-rays just went away. Like, oh yeah, nobody cares. Yeah, and I, I guess it just uh, maybe some of it was, was dumped on YouTube. It was just assumed yeah. that you could do your own research and find the stuff. But I still, I still like all the extras. Um, yeah. And I know that, like, in regard to Blockbuster, Blockbuster, if you think, I have no sympathy for the corporate entity of Blockbuster, but they were in a tough spot because at a point they were trying to compete with Netflix, which literally meant they were almost in providing the same service going against their own existing brick and mortars. Right. So yeah. they were like a, in a real weird situation because our blockbuster used to do mail and DVDs like Netflix. Right. Oh yeah. I totally skipped. I've just memory hold that, that Netflix was like, that was their main business. Like, uh just well yeah they did these mail-in dvd things and i remember yeah, like yeah. i think that when i was work i was working at new york press around uh you know r.i.p a great city all weekly around mm. 2003 2004 and i and i remember re somebody said something like this used to be a cool city and now it's just like netflix envelopes everywhere <laughs> You know, that was the sign of like the death of <laughs> the death of culture and nightlife at, at that time. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> maybe that was the beginning of the end. Yeah, <laughs> well, maybe, but it's also like you know what what was to come. Yeah, you, know, you you don't even get the envelopes anymore. Yeah, no, I know. Um, yeah, and it, it really has turned into uh, it. It's like I was saying in the in the doc, like there was this great hope that streaming would uh would save us i mean there was some light at the end of the tunnel with prime amazon prime and and even youtube not for features but for people who wanted to do um youtube content you know uh yeah but they, you know the deals kept getting worse and worse and prime in 2018 deleted thousands of uh independent films off their service yeah it's some ridiculous community standards none of it made any sense it's like I was saying, you could have you could have watched like Human Centipede, and then like a, a you know it's like Debbie Rashawn's movie got kicked off or something, and it was just all about you know where the films were coming from, you know it, yeah. that's all it was, you know. Well, just so, was the idea that they just wanted to make sure that the studios that like major studios and major you know places like Disney and so forth that they they knew that they were getting the best possible deal. Was that the kind of the motivation there or what was I, th it? I think it was um, like relationship management, I guess. Well, I, well, let me, let me say it this way. So yeah. I think prime looked at YouTube and they're like, mm -hmm. we want some of that free content money. Yeah. And so they kind of open up the front gates to people like me yeah. and then our films get on there and yeah. then they're like, Oh boy, there's a bunch of, movies that we we don't really need or want on here right and they're like how do we we want to be more pristine like netflix how do we kind of jettison some of these and i, right. I think it was that and they gave up the cover story was about like I, I think it was something about community standards or video quality but it was very uneven it was very obvious like yeah. they deleted films from like trauma and tempe and you know maverick all these low end distributors yeah. but you know it's not like warner brother was getting anything pulled right. so it was just all about i think wanting to be like netflix you know yeah because you'd think like especially like amazon like they're the idea of amazon is that you can buy anything on amazon mm -hmm. you go on amazon you can buy anything and so you know like their resources are supposed to be infinite like in terms of their their identity as a retail you know retailer and you think that would be true of also their streaming stuff like they would, they would just be able you stream everything so yeah. why you know it's kind of weird that they would put a limit on that at all in my opinion yeah i mean you you still can you could still can put your low budget film up there and it, yeah. it could be fine but they did do a huge purge at some yeah. uh, 2018 Right. So yeah. So in VHS Massacre two, you got you took on streaming, which initially had some promise for for in, for independent or exploitation filmmakers, and then but then that just goes away, right? Pretty yeah, much the, like just it's all about, worse and worse. Yeah, 
No, I think that's true. It just um, the the deal the deals are never. I'll I'll use the word fair, but they're just they're never. Uh, they don't care about the content, so they're not really going to pay much for it. So yeah. that that's kind of how it is. Um, although the weird thing is, um, last year and then this year there yeah. is a rise in uh, DVD physical sales. Really, there there is a bit. There's a little boom and standard definition dvd um and i can't help but think it's partially because of all the the squabbling of um intellectual property yeah where you have five different subscriptions you're paying for and you can never find the movie that you want and yeah um and an, an article i read basically said with modern televisions or uh, game systems like ps4 if you put in a, a standard dvd it's actually pretty beautiful it'll upscale everything the audio will be um uh, tweaked uh, color mm -hmm. profile it's degrained sometimes yeah um so they they credit that partially with let's say the average viewer seeing you know buying something off amazon like 6.99 new yeah or like 15 for the blu-ray and they just buy the DVD and they put it in their 55 inch 4K TV and it still looks fine. So, yeah. Um, Do you think so, there's a, that there's an, uh, just, it's just a thought, but like with streaming stuff, do you think that there's a, a degradation? Do you think it doesn't look as good as it could when it's streaming? Yeah, I do. I, I uh, you know, people always tout uh, resolution, yeah. but um, color space is a, is a huge, um, factor and how good something looks and when you're taking something you know they brag about ultra hd which is essentially 4k and when yeah. they say when they brag about that and they have the stuff streaming well you know they can't take a 40 gig file and stream that so they compress the living hell out of the video signal so yeah. they retain retain the resolution audio is really compressed video the color space gets really compressed and so what you have essentially is is something that doesn't always look as good as it should. Even if yeah. you're buying a 1080p Blu-ray, which they have 4K yeah. ones now, but even 1080p Blu-ray, the color space, um, you know, that file on the disc is about like a 20 gig file or something. Yeah. So it's way more information, even though it's not, um, you know, anyway, it's not just about resolution, you know? Right. Um, yeah. Cause I was watching uh, Barry Lyndon on my iPhone the other day. <laughs> <laughs> it's the most ridiculous thing to watch. <laughs> yeah that one yeah. so uh, so that that film came out in 2019 which you know now we're in 2022 and the other hopefully on the other side of the pandemic so yeah. what's changed since since that th that sort of death spiral of streaming and independent and just uh, exploitation filmmaking that you documented in vhs2 massacre 2 well, I do think there's a there's a ton of discussion about it. There's a there's a ton of discussion about finding uh, finding the way around the the studio system. And uh, you know, if you listen to a lot of independent filmmakers, it's very tough. Like just putting your film behind a paywall on Vimeo or something, yeah, doesn't really work unless you're famous. Uh, they're uh, signing a bad deal with your film too soon is is yeah. not a, a good thing to do. So there's talks about um, actually using physical releases as a tool. I mean, even though the video stores are gone, uh, believe it or not, um, Blu-ray and DVD sales um, is still significant. Like uh, the newest Wonder Woman, like uh, $20 million uh, worth of the, the sales was um, from physical media. Really? Yeah. And that, so that's not nothing, you know, I mean, yeah. you know, and that was released uh, directly to a streaming service, as I recall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when but people still want the Blu-ray, people still want the DVD. Yeah. And so um, it's far from dead, uh, and I it's still much larger than vinyl. And vinyl, I think, continues to grow. And believe it or not, I think physical media continues to grow. Um, one idea, yeah. One idea is that. That, you know, I was looking at this thing. They say, you know, merchandising is bigger than everything. Yeah. So they like merchandising apparently is bigger than even the film box office. Right. And so, you know, if you think about your favorite films, 
and what types of merchandise you can yeah. get, you know, maybe one day Blu-ray and DVD will be looked more purely as like merch collectible. Right. But maybe it'll stick around for a while, you know? Yeah. I feel like that there's already sort of, um, there, there is sort of like a niche kind of movement towards like VHS as collectibles, right? Yeah. 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 And Very I, cool. You know? Yeah. They're cool. I mean, they're cool physical objects. Yeah, for sure. I don't, I don't watch them that often, but I, I like, I have a couple shelves worth. You know. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Uh, they're, they're sorted by color. <laughs> just all like blues and reds and they're beautiful. Yeah. Like, you know, on a shelf, it's cool. Yeah. But I was saying like, uh, like in, in, in VHS, VHS massacre too, there's like a couple of scenes from, it looked like a convention, I think. Like Lloyd Kaufman, like at a convention, like, you know, like meeting yeah. and fans and people are probably like, you know, you're going to go and you're going to buy a DVD or something. Right. Or a T-shirt. I, yeah. 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 I, I um, yeah. For me, it's like a pil- pilgrimage. Right. Go yeah. say hi to, to Lloyd and try to buy something. And uh, yeah, it's specifically trauma titles. Believe it or not, trauma, like they still move a decent amount of uh, physical media. And, really? Yeah, because it's trauma is such a part of people's childhood now, uh, and and uh, whatever young adulthood that you know, if you go to a convention and you can buy, uh, you also kind of know what you're getting. So yeah. even if you went to a, a trauma convention and yeah. they had a few titles out, yeah, I mean maybe it's just me, but I would definitely pick up something I never heard of because yeah. I know it's going to have a specific brand that's going to be like crude or crass or have violence or, you know, nudity or, you know, whatever monsters, you know, it's a yeah, lot of, yeah. you know, something fun about it. Yeah. So I was saying yeah, about before sure. when you're talking about exploitation movies, it's almost like independent films that have hooks. Yeah. You know, I mean? yeah. You know they, they have a catchiness to them. Like it's not just like uh, an art film about uh, a troubled family and a personal story kind of, you know, yeah. Kind of thing. yeah. And I, and I, I really do think, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's being dramatic, but I actually do think these films are important to like what I would say is the counterculture. Yeah. Instead, if you look at, you know, there's five or six media companies that control uh, most of the streaming media. Yeah. And um, there is a certain um, safeness to the content. Um, yeah. And because I think people are, they, you know, they, people don't want to offend anyone on purpose and all that stuff. But what that also means is that, those streaming sites are not including a lot of the the exploitation films, which are, are not afraid to push boundaries. Yeah. And someone argues that literally the job of an artist, and if you're not pushing the envelope, what exactly are you doing as an artist? So, yeah. Um, and it's I think it's actually a serious problem if you don't you don't have a counterbalance. You know, there if this is the culture, then you need the counterculture. So I, I Lloyd Kaufman in particular. Um, I'm just a huge fan of, I consider yeah. him a, a friend at this point. And uh, yeah. I think, I, I think he's like a cross between uh, Mark Twain and PT Barnum in that, like he, you know, he, he puts all this, um, you know, in, environmental and anti-pharmaceutical stuff into his movies. Yeah. And he uh, like, no one is safe from, from, from him. And, but also cause he's not bound to anyone, you know? So yeah. Um, yeah, and so I, is that, I think, yeah. Oh no, finish your thought. No, no, I think I just think it's I I think it he ends up being far more important, at least in regard to cinema, than you would think. Yeah. Because I think on surface you just think these are throwaway exploitation films, but when you realize there's almost no place for them in the mainstream, then you start to go like oh, that's a serious fucking problem, you know? Yeah. Um so would so, you say that's yeah that's something I really wanted to talk to you about as I mentioned when before our conversation like what you know what is the value of these uh, exploitation movies is it as you say what I'm inferring from what you said it's sort of like they're not beholden to anybody they really can be independent voices in the way that you know a more mainstream film can't be and they push the envelope is that sort of the extent of it yeah, and also too, like there are certain films, like if you look at like like early John Waters stuff, like Pink Flamingos, or or you know stuff like Coppin did, 
like those things were pretty <laughs> pretty frowned upon yeah and those filmmakers were taking um some pretty serious risks uh i think the guy who did is it near who did um i spit on your grave like he made that one film i think he was pretty much <laughs> condemned i don't think he yeah. ever directed after that you know yeah. But what what you realize too is that um, there there's no crystal ball in regard to what people will be more tolerant of in the future, and a lot of the ex- ex- exploitation films end up being in like way more progressive. Like you don't look at them as progressive now, but back when they were made, they're really progressive. Um, Professor James Richardson talks about uh, Three the Hard Way with Jim Kelly, Jim Brown, and Fred Fred Williamson. Yeah. And he says that was essentially um, like the Black Avengers, like without yeah. Three the Hard Way, there'd be no Black Panther. And so you can think of these films as throwaways or as films that are dated with, yeah. without contemporary um, uh, sensitivities, but uh, they were incredibly important as a stepping stone for other things. And, yeah. and a lot of those films are like that. George Romero is absolutely an exploitation filmmaker. Night yeah. of the Living Dead had a uh, black lead and, you know, it was it the 60s? I mean, he was doing stuff that um, a lot of people weren't doing at the time. So right. I, I do think they're important, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, if, you know, you're, that's unfair because you're picking the best one. If you pick like George Romero, <laughs> you know. No, I got to like, pick the worst one, right? Yeah. I can yeah. defend the worst one. Well, <laughs> well I, no, can, I can, yeah. Oh, go on, go on. No, no, no. Because, yeah, obviously, like George Romero. And also, because I just did this, uh, an episode about uh, Tobe Hooper and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I think you can say that that, you know, sort of captures the ambiance of like 1974 in a way that, you know, whatever, like Hello Dolly or whatever bullshit that the studios are putting out at the time did not. Yes. Um, yes. But I think that also, but there are, there's a vast, there's a sea of, of exploitation movies. There's a, is a, I have a rationalization for that. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm going to, and this is probably a bastardization, but so Marshall McLuhan, like the media guru, right? Yeah. Canadian media guru. He always said the medium is the message. And he was referring to what, what an, what a piece of um, media does is what it does is far more important than any individual content. Yeah. So I would take that, I would bastardize that to say, if you look at exploitation as a whole, yeah, it's necessity for being there is far more important as a counterbalance to, to mainstream culture than any individual bad film or even good film. Okay. But just as, a, as an overall movement, it's vital to yeah. a, a healthy uh, art, to the health of the art form. So yeah. that that is my rationalization for it. But I believe that's, I actually think that's true. Like, I don't think it's yeah. out of my ass. Like, I actually think that's, that holds to be true. So you can definitely look at exploitation films like, oh, that's, that's misogynistic or, or whatever. Um, you know, this film's just bad. Is there just bad or it's just a thrill ride? You know, I mean, just it's it's titillating, but without without like making a statement or without something. meeting or yeah, yeah, or, yeah. yeah you know, like it's not. Um, That's what I meant by Romero or or Tobe Hooper or something because they have meaning. Like those films have. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah, I know what you're saying about cherry picking the very best and saying and extracting yeah. meaning from that. But the, but I but you know I. I definitely celebrate trauma and tra- there's yeah. some certain films uh, like blood sucking freaks and all that stuff. And yeah, you'd be sort of hard pressed to find the social value in that. Yeah. But, yeah. but you can definitely look at it uh, in a way where it's, it's better that those kinds of films are there and made than not. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that's the way, that's the angle I would take on it, you know? Terrific. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't want to, uh, like I, I warned you that I wanted to, to do this kind of, part of this conversation yeah I, yeah yeah i hope i'm not coming off as is too like churlish yeah. no no I, I so far it's been really fun actually that's really cool great. now um so the other oh yeah the other follow-up i wanted to have about uh streaming stuff uh since 2018 2019 is there's there seems to be like a couple more like niche kind of streaming services like definitely with horror there's like uh there's shutter 
I think there's one called Screenbox that I just noticed. I'm a, I know Shutter pretty well. I just found out about Screenbox via Twitter the other day. Uh, there's um, Mubi, M-U-B-I. Yeah. And there's, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, there's Fantagraph. So there, there seems to be like more, a, a, not just Amazon Prime, Netflix, Hulu, and I don't know what, there's not just the big players. Yeah. yeah smaller yeah. players. And is that good for, I mean, it's good for consumers, I guess, but is it good for uh, uh, independent filmmakers? Is it good for exploitation filmmakers? I think so. Cause I think um, there, you know, it's like, at least there, it's an option on the table. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that the jury is out as to how profitable those independent streaming sites are going to be. I know yeah. Full, Moon, Full Moon has one. Midnight Movie Society has one, which is part of NBD, which is one of the remaining uh, independent film distributors. Um, I think that, like, well, Troma said, you know, Lloyd and Troma says that Troma Now, that's their streaming services, is actually growing and okay. so continues to grow. So they seem to be having a, a foothold, but they're a company that had like a, a thousand film catalog. Yeah, yeah. You know, that was kind of their mission to, when they had extra money, acquire more films. Yeah. Um, and probably Full Moon has a pretty good catalog. Um, Arrow uh, has something with a streaming. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just going to be sort of that, whatever you want to call it, um, capitalistic... Uh, Darwinism, right? I mean, I yeah. think there's probably going to be a handful that make it, yeah. and and you got to hope that those are not snatched up because you have right. to imagine the minute the minute that one of those becomes highly profitable, it'll oh be, could, yeah, could that's be absorbed, when Amazon you know? comes knocking, right? Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I was saying, like, um, I watched on. There's a movie I'd heard about a little bit, like a, a, a called this something like the Scary of Sixty Third Street, and it had a little bit of it's like an exploitation kind of movie, and it has a little bit of notoriety with like it's about like Jeffrey Epstein kind of stuff, but uh, it has, has notoriety because like some people, this Twitter famous person did it, this person with a podcast, uh, Dacha Nekrasova, and she does the podcast Red Scare, and so it had a little bit of like buzz because of that, um, but then I saw it like it was on Shutter. And then, it, then it showed up on Shutter, and I'm like, "Oh, okay, that's that's great." And it said like it's a Shutter exclusive, you know. And I'm mm. like, "Well, maybe you know, maybe this is this is a really good thing for her, and maybe film people like her, you know. Uh, I mean, she's a little bit more of like a public persona than than most filmmakers are, you know. Mm-hmm. But like, um, you know, maybe this is good. Uh, what what's your response to that? How do you do you oh. think it might? Am I wrong? Am I cautious optimism about this? No, well, the fact that she had a film that was uh, acquired by Shutter and then like branded Shutter. Yeah, yeah, know, yeah, I yeah. think. Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, like, I can talk a good da- game about like, uh, you know, railing against the conglomerates and everything. But you know, at the end of the day, you do want your film to be seen. And uh, yeah. and if if Shutter is paying something, if they're if there's an independent film and there, and and hopefully that filmmaker is getting some revenue from that and uh, yeah. i think at the end of the day that that's kind of what we want like uh, yeah. it, you know i'm not i'm not so much against netflix that i wouldn't want my film on there it's just right. it's just uh you know they they uh i wish they would have um a micro budget uh category i think this is an idea i first heard from sean phillips who's this actor had uh, this is the first time i I had heard about the idea that yeah. the, the main major streaming shites, sh- shites, <laughs> shites. Some, uh, Freudian slip, right? Freudian slip. Um, the major streaming sites should, uh, should maybe, if they did it upon their own uh, accord, that would be nice to require micro budget, uh, a category for it. Yeah. And then just, you know, acquire like a thousand films a year and, you know, I mean, what are they going to pay for them? Like 10 grand a pop? It wouldn't be that expensive, you know? Right. And if they want to silo it off to, to say like, hey, this isn't the premium content, but we have this micro budget area. I mean, yeah. that would be great. It, for yeah. Shudder, there's no excuse for it because yeah. people love low budget horror. I mean, they love yeah. it. So, Yeah, um, that seems to be the easiest kind of genre to do a low budget thing. 
is, yeah. uh, which is um, horror. Uh, or and then maybe special interest doc, which is <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you <laughs> <Those> go. <are> <laughs> two things I do, yeah. yeah, yeah. So the um, so what? Also, your VHH massacre too. Like like I kind of alluded to before, it was a pre-pandemic. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Work. So what? So so the the two you know things that happens is that is like the well among them like so how did the pandemic really affect uh, exploitation filmmaking yeah um your estimation i i interviewed lloyd about it i know i talk about trauma a lot but no that's great sort of given me a home so i'm I'm, you know for my movies at least so yeah i'm not complaining team toxie all the way team toxie yeah (laughs) well lloyd you know lloyd said said the pandemic was actually okay you know um they they were pretty creative uh the mahoning drive-in i think is in pennsylvania and it's this great big old drive-in and so they did a lot of outdoor um screenings and and merch uh, like many conventions and all that stuff so they, they moved a lot of stuff outside they had a lot of movie screenings at mahoning drive in and then uh people were still buying physical media and people were subscribing to trauma now. So trauma um, seemed to be doing okay. Um, in regard to, I mean, it definitely limited filmmakers and how they were going to yeah. make films. Uh, and there, there is a lot of, uh, it's a lot of sort of desperation in like how to move forward. Um, even my friend, uh, Jason Carvey, he, uh, he wrote till death, which is that Megan Fox uh, studio film. It's this horror thriller. That? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Sorry, Jason, you know, Jason from, cause yeah. you reported on a new wave. Yeah. Sorry. I forgot yeah. That's that. yeah. right. Oh, no way. I didn't know that. That's terrific. Yeah. Yeah. That was his big uh, return to, to glory was uh, it, and it was pretty successful. Um, yeah. Till death. And it's, it's a great movie, believe it or not. It's like super, super, uh, it's almost Hitchcockian, like it's great, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard good things. I haven't seen it, but yeah, yeah he, I'll, I'll so definitely he, check it out. Yeah, that's terrific. Yeah, so he wrote it, and 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 um, they were in a tough spot. Um, you know, the film almost didn't happen, and he can actually tell you the story, but it's amazing because they there was something called COVID insurance, like they had okay. some kind of writer. Yeah, and so they were at the time. He claims it was the only one of the only films being shot in the world from when when it was being shot. Uh, oh, okay. And it was shot out of the country. Uh, where is it? I don't know. So he's some Eastern European country they were shooting in. Anyway, oh, that's fine. So um, it was like that movie and Avatar two through six were the only movies <laughs> right. in production. Yeah, but they they managed to get it made. Um, but he, you know. He can, you know, he can tell you it was, it oh, was yeah. stressful, very touch and go. They didn't know what was going to happen. Oh, I'd love um, to talk to him. Yeah, let's, uh, yeah, let's, let's be in touch because I would love to reach out to him. That'd yeah, yeah, I'm sure, yeah. sure he'd be interested. Yeah. Um, so I know that's what he was going through, but, you yeah, know, he persevered. No movie, though. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be fun. You'll love it. You'll love it. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess to, yeah. it's, I mean, because I think that you, you know, you, I'd imagine that it must have been tough for, uh, you know, low budget filmmakers to make anything during under pandemic restrictions. I mean, studios had problems. And I'd imagine that it would kind of just, it would, it, it might just impact the momentum, you know, just stop it dead in its tracks of like making these small budget movies. But, uh, but maybe not. I mean, you know, you can't you can't rule out human ingenuity and the canny hucksterism of, uh, you know, filmmakers and stuff. I did. I, did, I think people did. I think a number of people did find a way around. Um, I'm I'm I there were some broken dreams, I would imagine. And yeah. uh, and um, but in regard to distribution, you know, like a lot of the people who are still in the game were were kind of. You know, if you look at Full Moon, yeah, they're cranking out films, but they're not theatrical films. So a lot of them were all streaming anyway. Yeah. So in the the limited amount of people I reached out post COVID, yeah, is is it 
for the distributors that remain, which is probably not that many, yeah. um, I don't think it, I don't think it killed them based upon the fact that they're working with subscriptions and streaming and stuff like that too. And yeah. sale, DVD sales. So, okay. Yeah. And my, uh, my last question, which might be, maybe you're going to say this is a stupid idea, but I was saying, so there's like part of the thing that's sort of, uh, that supported, you know, exploitation films historically has been sort of a geekish enthusiasm for it. You know, sort of like yeah. ner nerd guys and girls getting really into it and really like being really possessive of it and making it their own and, and really cherishing it. And I was thinking that like that might have been siphoned off by like the Marvel films because there is that sort of geek energy and interest and uh, mm -hmm. boosterism with that. But is there so two prong question? Do you think that my Marvel is kind of stealing that thunder? And is does that boosterism still exist? Is, is there still that sort of love and support for these smaller films? Um, yeah, it's a good question because some you know some of those films uh grow reputations over decades you know if you think of something like evil dead it's like that, oh yeah, that yeah grew over time you know yeah um you know things like marvel it's tough i mean they they're you talk about the sort of um geekdom you know and all that stuff and um the yeah the audiences do seem to be pretty particular i always think uh, think of it like um you know if you're growing up as a as a child and every night your mom's uh, giving you a tuna casserole, you know, <laughs> you know, you're at a certain point, even if it's perfectly prepared, you're like, this is shit. I don't want that. You know, if you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. I never did that. But what I'm saying is like, uh, you're, you're going to be, you're going to be sick. If you keep getting fed the same thing all the time, you're eventually going to be sick of it. And yeah. you know, maybe, maybe that's somewhat of the things that are happening with fandom uh, because the, streaming sites are all about intellectual properties and they're too afraid to do fresh materials. So in result, yeah. everyone thinks they're eating the same meal a hundred times. Um, and so they hate it. Uh, yeah. That's one thing. Um, so I do. So I think thereby the, you really do need some of the independent content and it, it will be sort of Darwinistic, um, especially now, like maybe out of 5,000 films, maybe one of them will be a contender for yeah. something that um, could grow over time, you know, but, but yeah. also too, there's not enough play area for the small uh, filmmakers to take root. So yeah. you, they can't, you know, there's no, the tree can't grow. Like there's really no place for it. So they, you know, I'd like to say they're cutting their own throats. The media can, can, uh, conglomerates are, sort of cutting their own throats by not allowing more independent content in the mix to at least like take the gamble, take right, the one yeah. in one in a thousand and see what hits. Um, so in that result, there is an appetite, but the stuff has to be almost perfect. Yeah. You know, it's the audience isn't what it used to be where you'd rent a movie and take it home yeah. and you'd watch it and you could be like, yeah, that was okay. Yeah, and that was fine, you know. Um, yeah, that's not good. No one writes that, really. You know, yeah. it's either this is total horseshit and I hate it, or yeah, this is brilliant. I love it. So yeah, I will say, yeah, I think that that probably happens writ large. I've noticed that, like, look, Shutter. I I I keep talking about Shutter. I quite like it. I'm not the world's biggest horror movie fan, but they do have a variety of movies on there or whatever. Yeah. And if cool. they, if they yeah. want to send me some money, that'd be terrific too. <laughs> they want to watch this shit. But, uh, but yeah, so I found myself watching some of my low budget stuff on there, you know, like stuff that doesn't like I watched a movie called seed and it had like no, no, no name actors, like a horror movie. And it's, you know, all in one house seemed, you know, whatever um, it was, it wasn't, it was a solid seven out of 10 you know like and it, but i was like i liked it and i would recommend it to people and it's right there that's the other thing is that that so i feel like maybe there is a slight uh light at the end of the tunnel here you know for getting these films seen i think it's a, it, but it, that's it's a fascinating point because basically you're talking about curation and yeah and, and movie does that too movie is highly curated yeah and 
and it's really good. And, yeah. and, and shutter is, is pretty awesome too. And they do handpick certain films. And so it's this contest, it's this thing, right? We hate gatekeepers, but right. in the same thing, same way, it's helpful. Something is well curated. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know the mix of that. I don't know yeah. what the answer is to that um, because you, I was never someone who was in the cool camp anyway. Yeah, so like, yeah. if, if something was highly cur- curated, my film was not in that right. thing typically. Um, yeah. It's only with v- the VHS master docs that like mo- movie took that one and liked it. Yeah. But they also liked trauma stuff. So they cherry picked yeah. some trauma stuff. And so, uh, yeah, that's a conundrum, right? Yeah. Uh, gatekeeping and curation versus freedom to uh, have you uh, possibly have your film on a certain format. Terrific. All right, Tom, I know you're a busy guy. And we're like two minutes over our scheduled meeting. So I'm going to let you go. And uh, uh, man, this is terrific. It's really great to get back in touch with you and see your face and talk to you about this fascinating conversation. And uh, I hope you wouldn't mind if you, if I invited you on again. Oh man, I'd love it. This was a blast. And, uh, yeah. and this was really fun to catch up with you again and, uh, hope you're doing well. And yeah, and, uh, yeah. Let's talk again soon. Absolutely. All right. Thanks a lot, man. Right. See ya. All right.